How are young adults coming to faith? Are Sunday services really a part of evangelism today? Does your church need to blow its annual budget on a smoke machine and a light show? And how big is the gap between the Book of Acts and the mission of the church today? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Miriam Swaffield, the Global Student Mission Leader for Fusion and a visiting fellow of St John's College here in Durham. And our question today is, how are young adults coming to faith? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Miriam, welcome to Talking Theology. Thanks for having me. Miriam, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how have you got to uh, what you're doing now? Um, well, I work for Fusion Movement, so that's a basically an organisation that helps local churches reach university students and thinks about how students might come to know Jesus whilst they're at uni. So uh, we're all about equipping the local church really for student mission. So uh, I'm sat here because actually I... St- studied here so I, I just graduated like less than a month ago from the old cathedral up the road I did a master's here in theology mission ministry stuff so um that's how we've ended up friends and uh and I live in Middlesbrough which is a funny little town in the northeast of England which is just down the road an absolute dream fantastic you've been doing engaging student ministry for a while tell us mm. how did you first get into doing that and um yeah your own story about your own faith within that well, I didn't know student mission was a thing um, until I was a student sharing my faith with my friends and then discovered, oh, there's way more people doing this across local churches, across the country. So I sort of stumbled into um, helping start student mission in my local church when I studied in York, discovered there was this organisation equipping the church behind the scenes, that's Fusion, and felt some sort of sense of calling of serving that movement. And so upon graduating, at the time I thought I'll probably do this for about a year, just been a student, probably got about a year's worth of stories and then I'll run out. And then within, honestly, about three months of getting the job, was finding myself crying over this generation not knowing Jesus, finding myself crying over the beauty and dysfunction and like glory of the local church and suddenly realised, goodness me, I could for the rest of my life give myself to seeing the church reach students and the next generation. And so this is my eighth year. I've basically given my 20s to it and uh, feel like we've only just begun in terms of what the Lord's doing in his church, what this generation, what the Spirit of God's doing in this generation and what could be possible. Thanks, Miriam. So as part of your studies here, you did a research project looking at how students in particular kind of came to faith. What prompted you to ask that question in particular? And and why did you think it would be a relevant question to engage with? I think, um, well, I've got a bias towards evangelism and mission. That's my job and my joy. So I was always going to be more interested in those people that have just met Jesus even though I think it's incredibly important to look at formational discipleship and that long-term journey, I'm interested in brand new, how do you meet Christ on campus? And also we were hearing so many stories of baptism, salvation, some really kind of quite crazy uh, numbers of people coming into local church and um, coming into contact with God's people and meeting Jesus. I thought I'd actually like to get under the skin of those stories and find really in-depth, well, how did that happen? 
And uh, if there's anything I can learn to posture the local church to be the best invitation to meet Jesus, how many barriers can we take down and how many open doors can we create for more young people to meet Christ? So it came out of seeing on the ground these stories and thinking, I wonder what really happened behind that baptism. And was there a sense that this research would be relevant just for that student generation? Or have you always thought this might have something else to say to the wider church? Well, I think... um, you know, students are a niche demographic in some ways, you know where they live, you know what their kind of life stage is, and there's some real nuance to that, which is why we think about equipping the church for student work. However, thinking about reaching every generation coming through and some big kind of cultural trends, generational trends, particularly the church at large is talking a lot about, you know, where are the 18s to 30s and what do we do about them? So I thought, well, I can't survey everybody, but I've got a niche access to people meeting Jesus of that age. You know, they're 19, 20 years old and they've just met him. I reckon that will be a broader, a broader use, even if I couldn't survey the whole country, you know. I know your research actually involved going to meet and talk with yeah. students who come to faith in Jesus Christ. When you met them and you heard their stories, what were the common themes that you identified as part of their journey of Mm. coming to faith well i mean there were like over 40 factors that these uh, even that's me summarizing them that students were mentioning had all contributed to them saying i'm now a fully signed up follower of jesus um i then you know even just trying to bottle down where are some broad brushstrokes and commonalities 75 percent or above you know there were like 12 factors that 75 percent of these students were like that's part of my story or more and but these broad headings of like the local church and the relationship the kind of nuance of the local church relationships people to people that dynamic um a dynamic of investigation and kind of question asking and uh supernatural experiences of the holy spirit they were kind of four big broad headlines that could fit a lot of the factors that were coming up Let's look at those four factors in turn. Um, Church, what was uh, what was the key finding you made about the role of the local church and the role that it played in them coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Um, What was that that was surprising? What was that that was perhaps new? Mm. I think the, the number one factor that every student that came to faith said that had been important, vital in their journey to Jesus um was the sunday service and that isn't to say um at all that we should be sunday centric because that's partly a, a problem we've got in the church around thinking come to us rather than going to others but um the role of the sunday service provided every single student an opportunity to be invited and for them to say yes and to experience something of the people of god and to know more of jesus in a regular sunday church service that was the number one thing of the students said, I was invited to Sunday church. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's just understand, secondly, relationships. What was that? Mm. What was it in relationships that had such an impact? Well, really encouragingly, so peer-to-peer evangelism, the big thing was they all had a Christian peer, a friend of their own life stage that had invited them and shared their faith honestly. But there was also a brilliant dynamic of um, somebody from another generation that could just be an older student, you know, fourth year with a first year, or it could actually be a parent or grandparent um, type relationship that they also found incredibly helpful in learning of Jesus was somebody of a different generation investing in them. Basically, this younger generations need relationships and they need it across the board, not just peer to peer. 
So that's relationships. Thirdly, use that word investigation. Tell us what's behind that. Uh, under that kind of heading, we, I was finding the power of space to ask questions in a kind of a judgment-free zone where they could ask anything and not feel silly and express all their doubts and not feel judged. That was just so important. And alongside that, um, their hunger to understand the Bible really came up there. Mm. And the fourth thing, the Holy Spirit, we might imagine what might be under that heading, but tell us, mm. tell us, give us a bit more detail of that. Basically with that, um, although I'd say Holy Spirit is kind of in everything. So, you know, under the church category, you also had small groups and the welcome of the church and things like that. Obviously the Holy Spirit's present in all of that. But in uh, supernatural experience of the Holy Spirit, so uh, actually encountering God's manifest presence in a way that was outside of their norm. And that could just be a crazy sense of peace all the way through to crying and shaking and joy and things. But also um, prayer that actually works, like them seeing prayer make a difference. That's really what I put under that heading Holy Spirit. So I was like, oh, there's some really quite extraordinary, miraculous moments here that Mm. can't just be explained away. Mm. That really is the presence of God for them. Let's look at those four in a bit more detail, if we can, Miriam, and particularly kind of thinking about what your theological reflection is on that and kind of what's God doing and how's that consistent with how God has always behaved Mm. and the way that God has always been at work in people's lives. First of all, church, in terms of how God was at work, was that consistent with your expectations from reading the scriptures about how God's been at work or understanding God at work in history? Was there stuff that was new? Tell me about. Uh, I think all my findings you could have found in the book of Acts. That's, you know, the irony is it's nothing new, but it's just what a wonderful reminder and renewed confidence we have that it's not like the thing's broken. It's not like we've all missed the point. Gathering to worship in a bigger group, gathering in smaller community to go more real life on life with each other in the scriptures, being incredibly welcoming and um, giving people a context to belong. That is true in the early days of the local church where people were added to the number daily as they were taught, as they shared things with one another, as they were welcomed. And that is still true today. And so keeping our confidence in don't quit meeting with one another and remember every opportunity is an invitation. Every opportunity um, where you gather could be an invite for somebody yet to know Jesus to find more of him. These students would all testify to just being invited into what the life of the church was already doing that was powerful and that you see throughout scripture that's not new so although we might note the very significant cultural gap between the generation of the early church Uh and the cultural generation that we're experiencing today you're saying actually the god who worked then is the god who works today and let's not miss out on all that god wants to do when people gather together to worship him that's right and you know just to encourage people listening that think they don't have the coolest church or the best branding not one student mentioned lighting sound smoke machines or an electric guitar they mentioned people welcome belonging respect what about the relationship side Acts, it seems to me, focuses quite a lot on the, the church gathered together. What What is there in the kind of theological resources that you brought to kind of looking at this research that says God's always been at work in the relationship side of how people come to know Jesus? Yeah, I mean, you get these glorious examples of relational evangelism, whether that's, um, it's, well, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, I think he just gives us a masterclass in walking with people in relationship as he shares the good news with them all the way through to even how you watched 
Saul and Paul get mentored and then become a spiritual dad and mentor others and like journey with young believers that then become leaders themselves. And you kind of watch these dynamics, even in how in throughout the New Testament, brothers and sisters, the framing of teaching and the framing of mentoring in the context of relationships, it just comes up over and over again. But um just remembering that you are probably somebody else's key Christian friend that will share Jesus with them. So if every one of these students said, oh, wait, a friend shared faith with me and invited me to church, you and I listening, if we follow Jesus, that's probably us. And that could be your friend giving that same story. That's just really encouraging. You know, even when you read like Philip, the evangelist, just sort of walking down the road and the Lord basically tells him to just go near that carriage over there and join in a conversation that the guy's already kind of asking some questions and he just sits alongside him and begins to share and you think actually your colleague your um your neighbors every one of these students testify to a key christian just was honest about who they follow and so that relational dynamic it can't just be a generic meeting you've got to someone's got to know your name and someone's got to say you're welcome here and it strikes me that Within the New Testament, the language of family, which mm. carries with it relationships with the brothers and sisters, we can just let that roll over us, can't we? We can forget how right. radical that was in the first century to describe right. these people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, and suddenly describe, no, we're in relationship together as sisters and brothers right. in the body of Christ. Right. And with dysfunctional families now, if you actually, you know, some of these students were saying this was the most wholesome community I'd ever seen. Because if they've actually come from incredibly broken context, to see, to see people not judging each other, speaking well of each other, praying for one another, all of these ways in which if you, you're kind of raised Christian, you're like, oh, yeah, that's just what you do in small group. No, this is like speaking volumes to people that basically feel quite undermined, disrespected or overlooked in their context. They're finding validation in the family-like relationships of the church. Mm-hmm. The third theme you identified was one of investigation, the willingness of the church to tackle questions, engage with questions. Where do we see that within the the early years of Christianity and or even perhaps the, the longer history of the church as a kind of respectable way of engaging people seeking Jesus? Well, the funny thing about Jesus is that he really spent way more time asking questions and being asked questions than any answers like if you actually try and find where he gives a direct answer you've got like maybe three direct answers compared to literally hundreds and hundreds of questions and um again what struck me about the research which i just thought oh that's still true is that the students weren't by and large testifying to and then i got given answers or then it neatly wrapped up all my confusion and doubt. But the big emphasis was I had space to ask. I had I felt validated just because I was listened to and I didn't feel silly even when I asked a potentially obvious question. And you sort of see Jesus meet different people where they're at. Like the fact that he first meets Nicodemus in the dark, because Nicodemus is basically ashamed to ask his question, but Jesus isn't ashamed to meet him in the dark means that later on when Nicodemus is in the light and clearly like clearly out and out following him Jesus has let him ask his questions and it's kind of shame free judgment free even though Nicodemus might have felt a bit silly and so you just I was just so so encouraged by these local churches that are clearly created environments where doubt is not a problem it's an opportunity to learn more together and ask anything you are welcome. I thought, like, well done, church, because I would have thought we'd have been more judgmental around doubt 
And clearly these guys thought it was a wonderful thing to ask better questions. So I just thought it's great news. And there's something, isn't there, in the Old Testament about simply the psalmist being given voice to the questions which are not answered. Right. Where is now your God? You right. Know, and and simply the place of those questions in Scripture mm. validates our God's willingness to listen to our questions right. and to hold them. Right. And to live in the tension of it's not all okay. Mm. It's not all clear. It. How will we have shrunk and domesticated God if I could neatly wrap up every single one of your questions and tell you this is what God's like? I'd have a much bigger question for that. Mm. So the fact that there is space to wrestle and go, I actually don't know. Shall we look together? Mm. What does the Bible say about that? What does that really mean for us today? Mm. Just sounded like some really rich, robust investigation going on, which mm. will, I pray mean much firmer foundations in the long run. Mm. I used to find when I was doing evangelism in the local church that with people of all ages, but particularly kind of 18 to 30, a sense of they felt they didn't have even permission to ask the question. Right. And actually just saying that's OK to ask that question. That's it. Yeah. What were the were there any particular themes to the questions that people were asking in terms of the research that you did were there any questions that they i needed to ask this question perhaps i didn't get the perfect answer but this was a real kind of chewy question i needed to 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 kind of bring out there you know it really depended on context Mm. so for one who'd been raised in a catholic school the questions were very much around i've been taught one thing and now i'm a bit confused because they've not read the scriptures or whatever, but they've been taught certain prayers or certain ways of practice. So there were kind of some very cultural specific ones. Um, Other guys had actually done a lot of research. So they were like, okay, I've been looking at God and science debates on YouTube. So I'm now very interested to know what do you think about this? And what do you think about um, science, evolution, creation, whatever? A, A lot of the questions were more to do with, as they were coming into contact with the people of God, with the presence of God, with scripture, a dialogue was beginning. So, you know, for, for one girl, it was, why are you the only one not drunk in this room? What is that in you that means you're not going with what the whole culture yeah. is doing? Mm. And the questions around, why do you live what you live? Why do you say what you say? All the way through to where, where on earth do I start with reading the Bible? How do I get to know Jesus? Can I pray? How can I hear the voice of God? So a lot of them became in response to coming into contact with yeah. Jesus. Fourth area I identified, Miriam, was the Holy Spirit. And you sort of said that was a general Mm. kind of the way in which the Holy Spirit was at work in all sorts of ways. Again, were there points of connection with the way in which the scriptures speak about the Spirit's work? Were there things that were different? Were there things that connected with the history of the church? So it's fair to say signs and wonders are still a thing. And so just as you see throughout not only Jesus' life on earth, but then what his followers walking around getting to do declaring the kingdom healing the sick uh, there weren't any resurrection stories but um there were some healing stories that came through um there were some wonderful testimonies of the audible voice of god being heard and in fact we had um quite disturbingly actually although not a surprise when you look at the mental health stats we had a number of students testify to severe mental health problems to the extent where um more than I think two or three of them actually were um, about to take their own lives. And um, one was contemplating suicide when she heard the audible voice of God say, actually, um, you can have joy and um, joy can be yours because she basically was like, I might as well end it if this is what life feels like. Uh, And another guy was about to jump and um, 
felt something pull him back from the edge and say you are worth something your life matters you actually need to go to church really so some quite extraordinary uh some of them would say oh i knew it was god and some of them would say i would now know that to be the holy spirit speaking to me um so moments like that you're like goodness me like i didn't they didn't none of them saw an angel but some of them had almost angelic experiences in terms of feeling like they were pulled back from the edge and shown another way um as as well as like i say some healings stories and some one of them was about to get kicked out of their house couldn't make rent and money showed up through the door fun stuff like that you just think that's quite cool isn't it like mm. god is still providing miraculously and doing things that slightly we can't control that's really healthy <laughs> Standing back, Miriam, and, and identifying these wider theological themes, I think is really helpful and showing the, as you say, the continuity. We'll come back to that in a moment and think about how it pans out today. Mm. But let's kind of tie what your research has said into the bigger question about how conversion happens. Mm. It strikes me that particularly within the evangelical world, the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus, itself a contested event, we know, but the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus is seen as kind of paradigmatic, as emblematic about how conversion should happen, preferably with voices, blinding lights, the full works. (laughs) How did your research challenge the, the narrative of instant conversion and perhaps tally with the idea and some of the more more recent research that conversion is more a journey than an instant event yeah i think um yeah i I guess i read a lot about um the kind of different schools of thought around what the conversion really means but um one of my kind of litmus tests even with who i interviewed was that i i wanted there to be testimony around any moment or prayer that might have been prayed or whatever that would testify to them now living in the way of jesus because I'm actually not that interested in conversion. I'm interested in disciples, making disciples. And so to have their church leaders, student workers and community say, this is a disciple of Jesus. Most of them were baptized or about to be. They have been initiated into God's family and there was a change in their lives that was fruitful. It's even the fact that I didn't just go for who gave the life of Jesus, but who is actively walking in the way of Jesus, having met him in all of their stumblings and failings and grace um, that itself broadened out what conversion really means. And the truth is, some of them could probably give me a date, uh, maybe a third. Many more of them, it was just over time and journey. You know, one of them would say, when I was I was sitting in small group and realised I had come to agree with what all the Christians were saying in the room, and I suddenly realised, I think I must believe in what they believe too. I think I must actually be following Jesus now. And it was like a gradual waking up to the fact that over time and over journey, they too trusted him. And, you know, one of them ended up sort of discovering they followed Jesus by defending him to um, an angry parent and then realised, oh, goodness, I actually believe this stuff. Rather than, you know, I think maybe one gave their life to Jesus in an altar call in a service out of the 12 that I had in-depth conversations with. How do you think that challenges or indeed reinforces the way in which churches think about evangelism among younger generations? I think um, it's annoying, the challenge that it presents, because it actually means um, more time, more effort and more real-life sharing. 
Because if it isn't a moment and then few, they're safe because somehow they're saved, then actually you can do a one hit wonder. You can do an old school every Sunday and you've done your bit. Whereas if discipleship, if making disciples is this way of Jesus in which you are actually just sharing through the highs and lows and rhythms of everyday life, it costs a lot more. And yet the formation of a disciple is much more uh, robust and lasting than um, a momentary um, conversion experience. I think we always need to offer. I think one of the things the research shows is that every opportunity to invite, we should invite because a guest service wasn't what saw people come to know Jesus. It was a regular Sunday small group or service or relationship. So I think lots more invitation needed, but it's a whole life dynamic. It isn't just a moment and it can't just be an event because we're talking about a lot, a long-term journey following Jesus, not a one hit wonder. You know, you say for something, not f- just from something. So then if it's just a moment thing, you go, goodness, you're fine now. I'm like, no, like show me the fruit of your life. Show me the way in which you hear the word of God and put it into practice. That discipleship stuff, that's got to be all part of following him, not just praying a prayer on a Sunday. You've already hinted at how your research might have real relevance for the local churches engaging in evangelism today. And I know you've got a blog that caches Mm. this out and it explains it more, particularly for those working with students in evangelism. But out of those four themes of church relationships, investigation and the Holy Spirit, you've already mentioned the way in which the church needs to be see evangelism as a not just a one hit wonder, but part of a journey. Yes. What else are the messages you think the the local church needs to hear, not just about students, but about evangelism more generally from your research? I think just to encourage everybody, like I said, you are probably somebody's key Christian friend that will help them know Jesus. Secondly, um, any generation has an important part to play in other generations. This is not just peer-to-peer. So you're never disqualified, however irrelevant you might feel, whether you're younger or older. Um, I think also having confidence to read the Bible with people that don't know Jesus, because so many of these guys in their journey of following Jesus were so hungry for Scripture. It was kind of a supernatural work in which they were just like desperate to read the Bible. And um, the Bible's not just for Christians, and I think sometimes we forget that talking to myself as well. What does it look like for us to have more confidence in the written down word of God and introduce people to Jesus through reading the stories of Jesus together? I think we could all probably take a little bit more seriously the Bible as being used evangelistically, not just for small group when you're already safe or whatever that might mean. Um, and also just not being afraid when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I think as Christians, when we're in church, if uh, if we're in a more charismatic expression, if something crazy happens, like, oh, my goodness, someone speaks in tongues, we will go, oh, no, you know, if, if my non-Christian friends here, goodness me, let this not be the service that that lady prophesies really loudly. That guy speaks in tongues or they do the money talk, you know, and we sort of immediately freak out. Truth is, these guys uh, loved your Sundays. They really are interested in your preaching because they've never heard people talk like that before. And they are not freaked out by supernatural experiences. In fact, when other people are encountering the presence of God in ways they don't understand, it makes sense because they go, ah, because it's God. So I expect it to be outside of my comfort zone and understanding. Looks like God must be real. So I actually think we need to not freak out. We can therefore, what I'm hearing you say is we can make our services so seeker-friendly Right, that, that we sort of abstract them from from any of the slightly more scary things. But right. what I'm here, you're saying is actually just be normal yeah, on a d- Sunday, and if uh, you're doing it, just do it with people. Just, just be authentic. Like again, um, seeker friendly. Don't be an exclusive club in which people don't understand a word you're saying and don't feel invited. But please don't change how you express yourselves as a family because you're inviting him to inviting people into that real family. So mm. be real. Like 
Yeah. I love it when Tim Keller in Centre Church says on the basis that he, he, he preaches always on the basis that there will be non-Christian presence at every single service. That Absolutely. Not Same here. And therefore, you just behave as you are, but you say, I imagine there'll be guests here. You're very welcome. That's right. That's right. I always imagine my not yet Christian housemates in the room. Even though I'm 10 years out of uni, I always think about them. And every time I preach, I think of a 21-year-old not yet Christian sat in front of me because my assumption and faith is that they will be there. That brings us kind of to the final question for you. Having done this research and having reflected on the theological themes within it, how has all that helped you both personally in your own walk with the Lord Jesus and as a minister of the gospel in your present work? I think it's increased my confidence that um, what we, yeah, again, like the church actually does work as a, I know we're a dysfunctional family at times, but we really do have the bread and butter. We really do have the raw material for people to meet Jesus. We've not completely missed the point. I think it increases um, my level of faith that any church can play its part in seeing people come to know Jesus, not just the hip young thing. Um, And I think that's really important because I work with a lot of churches that aren't the coolest church in town, as well as some of your bigger, richer kind of new expressions of trying to reach young people. I, you know, I work with a parish church down the road as well. Um, And so I think just giving confidence to people on the ground, including myself, saying, guys, we can do this. Jesus is faithful. He is at work. But just remembering, don't say somebody's no for them and keep your eyes open. Assume that the Holy Spirit might actually want to use you to meet people. Assume that the harvest is actually plentiful. And those of us that are workers do actually get to join in with what God's already doing. Um, So I found it incredibly encouraging. And I was just so proud of the local church, the amount the amount of testimonies that showed that there's a lot of healthy local churches really doing a good job of helping make lifelong disciples. I thought, yeah, well done, team. Like, it's not all horror. It's not all the 18s to 30s are missing. There's phenomenal things going on as well. And so that really encouraged me. And it's encouraging to hear you say that, Miriam. It's not as if we need a whole new set of techniques. Right. We need flexibility. We need an invitation and welcoming heart. But the same God who has always brought people to faith is the same God who's at work today. Yes, I, I would just enjoy it. I would just get stuck in, like be active in what he's already doing. Yeah. Miriam. That's a great place to end. Thanks so much for coming on Talking Theology. Thanks, Philip. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.